Good morning, I'm Jim Jeffrey, one of the pastors here at Chapel Point. Um, a few weeks ago, five of us from the church went on a motorcycle ride. 2,268 miles later, we had uh, covered all of the Skyline Drive and all the Blue Ridge Parkway, covering 10 states and just a great time with uh, these four other brothers in Christ. One of the things that we wanted to do is that those particular roads because there's so many corners on it. And on a motorcycle, it's all about cornering. And uh, as, we're, as we're doing that, some of the corners were 35 mile an hour, some of them were well, 25, some 15. We actually did a few 5 mile an hour corners. And they're really tight and pretty exciting. And one of the things you learn on a bike is when you go into a corner like that, you're always doing a head turn and looking to the very edge as far as your eyes can see because you never know what's going to be around the corner. For instance, sometimes we came around the corner and found out that we were actually in the clouds and it's like a really dense fog. Another time there were deer that were there. And uh, closer than we'd like, we actually saw a small bear, an elk. And on one corner we came around, there was a car literally on fire alongside the road. You never know what you're going to experience alongside the road like that. Uh, following Jesus also means responding to his leading because you never know what's around the corner. Jesus continually did the unexpected for the undeserving. Uh, he surprised his followers with his miracles and his teaching, and people that encountered him were, were going to experience spiritual surprises. Uh, Jesus was consistent with who he is as Messiah, but unpredictable in some ways in terms of what he did. When we look at that, as the disciples followed Jesus, they were on that kind of a journey. And we're going to turn to John chapter 4 in the uh, Gospel of John. And we're going to read about a surprising encounter that amazed the disciples, a, a, a thirsty woman, and a whole community with what Jesus did here. Pretty amazing. Uh, we'll jump in in John chapter 4, beginning at the first verse. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself didn't baptize, only his disciples... He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. On the face value of this passage, it seems like there's nothing very surprising here. Kind of a travelogue, Jesus going from Judea through Samaria to Galilee. Uh, but there's a whole lot more here. Jesus coming to a well that has historical significance because Jacob had dug it and given it to his sons, but there's, there doesn't seem to be anything surprising here. That's because we don't understand how radical what Jesus is doing here. If you take a, a, the map and show it up here for just a minute, I want to show you something. So if you look at the map, you can see Judea in the south, Galilee in the north where Jesus would be going. And if you want to go as the crow flies straight, you're going to go right up through Samaria. But no Orthodox Jew, no Pharisee would ever travel that way. 
Matter of fact, they would actually cross over the Jordan, go through Perea, Decapolis, in order to get to Galilee. Why? Because there was a background here that there was a, a great deal of tension between the Samaritans and the Jews over their history. Politically, there was tension. Religiously, there was tension. Culturally, ethnically, morally, there was tremendous tension between these peoples. What's the background of that? Well, in your notes and your bulletin there, I've given you two passages of Scripture that you can look at later. But in 1 Kings chapter 12, after Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam becomes the king. And in part because of a judgment of God, Solomon had been an idolater, Rehoboam becomes very, very harsh in responding to the people, and there's a civil war. Jeroboam takes the northern tribes and establishes what's going to be called for the rest of the Old Testament Israel. And this is the divided kingdom. It's a civil war. Rehoboam kind of figures, Jeroboam figures out that if he continues to let people go to Jerusalem to worship, after a while they're going to reunite and it's probably going to cost him his life. So Jeroboam decides he's going to develop a new religious system. He actually casts two golden idols. He puts one down at uh, Bethel at the south, one at Dan in the north, and um, he establishes a priesthood that's not the Levitical priesthood. He establishes a, a false temple that's in Gerizim. He, he brings in false festivals and in a total, total religious system that's not as God had revealed in the Old Testament. Over time, each king becomes worse and worse and worse in Israel. Every king becomes more corrupt, more idolatry, worshiping all the pagan deities of the peoples around, actually offering child sacrifice. And so while this is all going on, God continues to send prophets to the northern tribes of Israel and to warn them. There's not one good godly king in that whole period of history. And so ultimately, God sends the Assyrians and the Assyrians come and they, they take the people captive. They take a lot of the people and take them off into captivity and bring five different nations of people in to sort of cross-pollinate with the people. That's how they kept revolutions from happening. And, and so as this is going on, the religious system becomes worse and worse and worse. The sin and the idolatry becomes worse and worse. And so by the time you get to the New Testament period... The Samaritan people, there was political alienation, there was religious alienation, there was ethnic, cultural, and moral alienation from the Jews, and the Jews wouldn't go through there. The interesting thing is that Jesus here says in verse 4 that he had to pass through Samaria, and he comes to Samaria. The woman in verse 9 is amazed that Jesus as a man, a Jewish man, is having a conversation with her at all. It is absolutely surprising and amazing. My friend, there's, a, there's something here for us. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, that is, if you've trusted in him as your Savior and Lord, then we too need to be willing to cross over political, ethnic, religious, social, moral, cultural barriers to be able to interact with people and engage them intentionally. And often we're not. Often we actually set up barriers between us and our neighbors and the people around us rather than saying, you know what, I have a responsibility to those people. And Jesus was intentional. He said, I've got to go through Samaria. Do you care about people beyond the differences that you have with them? Are you willing to, 
cross over your street, your place where you work, in order to intentionally engage with people that are different than you? Jesus was willing to do that, and he models that for us. Amazing. This woman was so surprised. She says, how is it that you, a man and a Jew, she was used to being judged and condemned by the Jews, and she was used to being used and abused by men, as the story plays out. But Jesus was there to to share with her a good news message that she desperately needed. You look a little bit further on this. Look and see her response. Look at her response. It's just filled with discovery, starting at verse 10. The woman asks the question of verse 9, Who is it that, How is it that you, a Jew, ask to drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus answered said, If you knew the gift of God, and you knew who it was who sang to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with. You don't have a bucket. The well is deep. Where did you get living water from? And this, is a, this actually makes me smile. Maybe it made Jesus smile when she asked this. Are you greater than our father Jacob? She clearly didn't know who she was talking to. He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. There's two kinds of people here this morning. There are people that came thirsty because you have yet to have that faith encounter with Jesus Christ. And there's those of us that have found the satisfaction that only Jesus Christ can bring. There's only two kinds of people. You're either like the woman at the well or you're like the disciples who had a very important lesson to learn here. And and one of the things I would just say to those of us that claim to be followers of Christ, Jesus gives us a pattern here of how we can intentionally engage with people to help them encounter Christ. Watch this pattern. Watch what Jesus does. And think about your neighbor. Think about the person that works with you. Think about the person where you work out or that relative that needs Christ, that person where you do business at that bank Think about those people right now and how you could intentionally engage with them, just like Jesus did. First of all, I want you to notice he initiates a conversation and creates curiosity. Sometimes we feel as believers in Jesus Christ, we've got to back up the dump truck and dump everything we know about the Bible in in a conversation. Jesus doesn't do that. He starts the conversation by simply saying, give me the drink. Actually doing something that's depending upon her. He engaged in conversation, and in so doing, created curiosity. She's just shocked. She says, how is it you're asking me? You're a man, I'm a woman. You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. Friends, we need to create curiosity in people about Jesus Christ before we share everything that there is to share, and that's Jesus so wisely does that. Just give me the drink. The second thing he does is he finds common ground. From verse 7 to verse 15, if you just glance down your text, notice these words. Thirst, water, drink, fountain, living water. Over and over again, over and over again, Jesus is actually going to use that common ground of water 
to be able to bring her to the place of understanding spiritual truth, spiritual reality. He uses that. You know, sometimes we act like people who don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ are so different from us that we can't engage with them. Friends, that's not really true. They are created in God's image, and you are as well. They live in a house, you live in a house. They mow their lawn, you mow their lawn. They raise kids, you raise kids. They have jobs, you have jobs. They have hobbies and like sports, you have hobbies and like sports. One of the things we need to do if we're going to engage intentionally with people that don't have a relationship with Christ, that haven't encountered him, is be intentional in building human bridges, common ground with them. I remember years ago when we lived in uh, north of Fort Wayne, Indiana, a little town, and uh, our son Dan and I were out playing basketball in the driveway, shooting hoops. I look across the street that we lived on, and there, the house directly across from us, there was a glass door, and two little boys with their faces, I mean, just pressed against the glass, watching us play basketball. So Dan and I walked over and said, said to the dad, hey, can, can your boys come over and shoot hoops with us? We'll be sure that they're careful in the street. Yeah, do that. You know, just by playing basketball and spending time with them, we found a lot of common ground that we had with them as a family. Uh, one of the things we found out that they had a swimming pool. I didn't want a swimming pool. I wanted the neighbor that had a swimming pool. And we spent a lot of time in the swimming pool. We, we hung out with them. We spent time with them. We got to know that he worked at the railroad. We got to know that though she was very introverted, she had a lot of questions. We got to know that they, they, they loved children and they wound up adopting about five children. Just phenomenal couple. And one day... And because I was a pastor, I, they, I, they anticipated that I would invite them to church, and I didn't. And one day they walked into church. And before that day was done, both of them trusted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. It started with a game of basketball. Friends, find common ground. Find common human ground with people. Jesus does that. And, and then he creates a spiritual thirst. So Jesus doesn't just leave it with common ground. He begins to talk to her and, and, and say, if you would have known who's talking to you and you would have known God's gift, meaning the gift of salvation, you would have asked and he would have given you living water. And we really don't know what she thought that meant initially. Is she thinking of some kind of an artesian well? Is she thinking of um, uh, maybe Jesus is uh, talking about indoor plumbing? She, we don't know. But Jesus is going to take what she did know and he's going to draw her towards what she didn't know. And that is eternal life. That there's something that she desperately needed. And, and he, he talks to her about that. He talks to her about it. He said, listen, everyone who drinks of this water, this physical water, is going to thirst again. But verse 14, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, that salvation in Jesus Christ, deliverance from our sins, forgiveness, they'll never thirst again. The water that I give him will be in him, a spring of water, spring up to everlasting life. Later, Jesus in chapter 7 says this, If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. He's talking about the ministry of the Spirit. Jesus is explaining to her that he was offering her something that was a free gift called living water. That he was offering her something that would satisfy her spiritual thirst that he was offering to her eternal life. And so as he creates that sense of thirst, which, friends, we can do that with people. You start sharing with people your story about how Christ has transformed you, and you create spiritual thirst. You don't understand how powerful your story is. 
If you've been transformed by Christ, you have a story, and your story gives them a sense of thirst for that same reality in their life. Jesus then identifies her heart needs. So she says to Jesus in verse 15, Sir, give me this water so I'm not thirsty, and I don't come here to draw. Now watch what Jesus does next. What he's going to do in this next part is he's going to identify her heart needs. And he does this by simply saying, in verse 16, go call your husband, and I will come here. And I think there probably was an embarrassed moment of silence, and I think her face probably turned beet red because of what happens next. She answers and said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five husbands, and the one that you have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Jesus is in essence saying, you're right in saying you don't have a husband because you've been a collector of husbands. You've had five. Now, we don't know. Did some of them die? Did some of them abandon her? Did, did she go through some unwanted divorces? Was she immoral? We don't know any of the details behind that, except she'd been married five times. And friends, that means that she had her heart broken five times. And that she now was living with a man that wasn't even her husband. And friends, that may be acceptable in our culture today, but it's not acceptable to God. And it certainly wasn't acceptable in this culture. So she's got a reputation in the town. And Jesus is putting his finger on her heart needs, the brokenness in her life, the needs in her life. Friends, you get close enough to people by just building those human bridges, by by sharing your story, by spending time with them, and sooner or later you're going to find out where they hurt and where their needs are and where the brokenness is in their life, and that happens here. She's a broken woman with a broken heart. So Jesus identifies her heart needs. Friends, when you do this, when you identify someone's heart's needs, that's not the time when you become judge and jury to them, but when you convey grace and truth. When you convey mercy and the reality of who God is. Very, very important. People expect to be judged by us and what they need to know is that we're not the judge God is and that we can bring them grace, mercy, and love in Jesus Christ as we touch that sensitive area of their life, that broken area, that, that heart need that points to their sin. Jesus then deals with their questions because beginning at verse 20, the woman said, uh, or verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. You know all about me, and I never told you my story, so I, I, I think you're probably a prophet. And so she's going to ask a question. And friends, when you begin sharing with people, they're going to ask you questions many times that you don't have an answer to. That's one of the reasons why many people who are believers in Christ, who are followers of Christ, don't, don't share their faith because they're afraid of someone asking them a question that they don't have an answer to. Uh, by the way, if, you, if you're still seeking out what it means to know Christ and encounter Christ, I want you to know this is a safe place to ask questions in this church. We welcome your questions. But I want to help those of you that are followers of Christ. What do you do when someone asks you a question and you don't know the answer? So we're going to practice today about what you do. You're going to say, that's a great question. Say it with me, please. That's a great question. And it deserves a good answer. And it deserves a good answer. I'll find an answer and get back to you. I'll find an answer and get back to you. So that's a good question. It deserves a good answer. I'll find an answer to get back to you. When I was a first-year student of Bible college, my oldest brother, a, an avowed atheist and brilliant in mind, 
Uh, I'm coming home every weekend to try to share the gospel with him, and every single weekend, Jack would ask me questions I didn't have an answer to. I mean, every weekend. He would, he'd stump me with some question, and I would just simply say, Jack, that's a great question, deserves a good answer, I'm going to get back to you on it. And I'd go back to campus, and I would study, and I would read, and I'd bring him an answer. Friends, by the way, I've only had one man in 40-some years of ministry that's asked me a question and I didn't have to answer to my brother. And I would bring him back an answer, and then I would share the gospel with him again. Good news is this. My brother trusted Christ as Savior, and he is now a pastor in Pennsylvania and a a great student of the Word, and that mind that he has is now fully engaged with teaching other people the Bible. Friends, don't be afraid of questions. And if you don't know the answer, don't blow smoke, don't pretend, don't guess. Just say, that's a good question, and it deserves a good answer. I'll get back to you on it. And friends, by the way, Pastors love to get phone calls from people in the church saying, hey, I got a question for you for somebody I'm sharing my faith with. That is one of the best things that can happen because we want you to be fully equipped and fully engaged. So look what happens in the question here. The woman says, sir, I perceive you're a prophet, verse 19. Our fathers, she's not talking about the patriarchs particularly, but probably talking about the Samaritan leaders. They worshiped on this mountain, But you say that Jerusalem is a place where the people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, or in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know because salvation is of the Jews, meaning the Messiah comes to the Jews, the Old Testament came to the Jews, the whole message of salvation. But Jesus said, the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him, kind of inviting her. God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So pause for a moment. Some people suggest that what's happening here is the woman's trying to change the subject. Jesus has touched on the raw nerve of her multiple husbands and her her brokenness. I don't think she's changing the subject at all. I think it's a natural response on her part. Jesus, you've pointed to my need and my sin. Where do I go and offer my sacrifice? Because the only thing that will solve our sin problem is a sacrifice. That's what we were singing about earlier. Jesus, through the shedding of his blood on the cross, made the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And so she's asking the question, where do I go to worship? Where do I bring my sacrifice? And Jesus said, it's not about Jerusalem or here. It's about worshiping the Father through the Spirit and in truth. That's what it's about. Jesus engages her in a question. Friends, we need to engage people's questions. And we need to help them find biblical answers to those questions. And that's what Jesus does here. I want you to notice also that she is going to discover Uh, who Christ is. She's going to discover who Christ is. If you go back to verse 9 for a minute, you see that all she knew about Jesus is this. Jesus is a Jewish man. That's all she knew. Asking her for water. If you jump down, though, she asks a question in verse 12. Are you greater than Jacob, our father? Greater than Jacob? I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. She's asking a question, are you greater than Jacob? Uh, A little later in verse 19, she says, I perceive that you're a prophet, you're God's mouthpiece. She has a growing awareness of who Jesus is. Ultimately, after Jesus speaks to her about 
about worshiping God in spirit and the truth, in verse 25, she said, I know that Messiah is coming, called the Christ, the anointed one who is prophet, priest, and king, the one who is going to fulfill all the messianic prophecies. And when he comes, he'll tell us all things. And look at verse 26. Jesus says to her, the one speaking to you is him. If there's any question about Jesus authenticating the fact that he was the Messiah, right here you see it. He says, I am the Messiah, no question. I am the prophet, priest, and king. I am the one prophesied of the Old Testament. Really clear right here. She has this progressive awareness of who Jesus is. Later, if you look at verse 27 and following. Just then his disciples come back and they marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her, her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, and look, look at what she says, come see a man who told me everything I've ever done. Could this not be the Christ? But what do we see here? As we engage with people, or if you're here today and you have not yet really encountered Christ by faith and, and had this transformation of life that he brings, then there is a progressive nature of coming to faith, of God revealing more about who Jesus is and more about our need. And we've got to be patient with people in that process. One man that I met with for two years, once a month, answering his questions and sharing the gospel before he trusted Christ as Savior. There's a a patient process we need to be willing to go through. And in this conversation, she has a growing awareness. Who are you, Jesus? Jewish man? Greater than Jacob? Prophet, Messiah, someone who told me everything I've ever done, amazing. So friends, we can learn from Jesus about how do we engage with people? How do we do that? How do we initiate conversations and create curiosity? How do we find common ground humanly? How do we create spiritual thirst? How do we identify heart needs? How do we deal with questions and help them discover who Jesus is? Because friends, there's nothing in this world that can satisfy apart from Jesus Christ. You see, she was thirsty. And what you don't know is the people that live on your street that don't know Christ, the people that work with you that don't know Christ, the people who work out where you work out, the people who share in your hobby interest, those people are also thirsty. And they can't be satisfied with money. Their soul can't be satisfied with pleasure. They can't be satisfied with a new car or a cottage or a camper. They can't be satisfied by simply living for pleasure. No, friends, the only one who can satisfy a thirsty soul is Jesus Christ. And you have that, and you need to share that with them. You need to engage with them intentionally to bring them to that place. You think about this. um, We talk about that our focus, our, our elders are very focused right now that we would love to see Chapel Point become a spiritual catalyst in a dry culture. Uh, what does that look like, really? It is a dry culture. To become a, a spiritual catalyst for a spiritual awakening in a dry culture. It's to acknowledge that people around us are thirsty for ultimate reality and purpose and meaning that can only be found in Jesus Christ. It's interesting, what Jesus does here actually is becoming that catalyst for spiritual awakening in a dry culture. 
Because everything we know about Samaria, it was a very dry culture spiritually and religiously, right? So Jesus comes, and as he comes, the men of the town, in verse 30, come out of town and were coming to him. And this woman becomes a catalyst to bring others out to encounter Jesus. Amazing. And if you fast forward in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, just before Jesus ascends back to heaven, he gives his disciples marching orders about what they were to do with the gospel. And he says, you're to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. Acts 1.8. Acts chapter 8 they actually do go to Samaria. God used the persecution that Saul of Tarsus brought to squeeze them out of Jerusalem and Judea, and they go to Samaria. And a guy called Philip is proclaiming publicly the gospel, and a lot of other people are sharing the gospel in Samaria. And if you read Acts chapter 8, there's an amazing spiritual awakening that happens. I mean, satanic power being broken down and people being converted and coming to Christ. How did that happen? It starts right here. Jesus is sowing the seed. It gets harvested in Acts chapter 8. So there's three things I want you to see about just the, the response, the transformation. It's filled with symbolism. The disciples, first of all, there's a symbol here of the disciples, and it's bread. They had gone into town to buy food. They come back out, and when they come back out, they see Jesus finishing his conversation with this woman. And in verse 31, the disciples say, Rabbi, eat. And he says, I have food to eat that you don't know about. The disciples are looking at one another and saying, has anybody brought him anything to eat? I wonder if Thomas said, I doubt I gave him anything to eat. I don't know. But they're just having this conversation. Anybody give him anything to eat? And Jesus explains. He said, my food, what satisfies me is to do the will of him that sent me and to accomplish his work. So Jesus is basically saying, what satisfies me is what I've just been doing, telling someone else about the water of life. You know, one of the most satisfying things you can ever do as a Christ follower is engage in intentional conversations. Jesus said, this was like bread to me. This satisfied me. This, this, this just so fulfilled me to do this. You know what's disappointing, though, friends? These disciples had just been in that town doing business, buying food. And they never saw the needs of the people around them. People with broken lives and broken needs, they never saw that. They went into town, they bought food, and they came back out. But they never saw the need. That's why Jesus says, verse 35, don't say there's yet four months, then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they're white already to harvest. And he talks then about sowing and reaping and the whole idea of harvest. Uh, some Bible students believe that these, as this crowd of men is now coming out of the city, perhaps with white turbans on their heads. Jesus is pointing to that crowd and saying, look, the fields are white to harvest. People are already ready and responsive. So there's a symbol of bread. The second thing I want you to notice here is that the woman, the woman in verse 28 left her water pot. Why, why does John give us that detail? Jesus left, the woman left the water pot. She had come out to draw water, by the way, at a, an unusual time, but she leaves her water pot. 
That's a symbol there to say to us she had had her spiritual thirst satisfied. And she's leaving her water pot there and saying, I got more than I bargained for when I came to the well today. I not only experienced physical water, but spiritual water. And that water pot is left there as a symbol and reminder that, friends, when people encounter Jesus, they get their spiritual thirst satisfied. You may be here today and you say, you know, I'm somewhere in between. I haven't yet really resolved it. I'm still asking questions. I'm still struggling. Friends, if you'd like someone to answer questions for you or pray with you, just out that door over there and to the left, there's a prayer room. There's people that would be happy to meet with you and just pray with you and encourage you and answer your questions. And if they don't have an answer, they know what to say, okay? So the water pot. And the last thing is the harvest. When you drive back in your street today, maybe you're going out to eat at a restaurant that you normally go to. When you go back to work, at least for a few days this week before the holiday, and you're going to see people. Do you see a harvest? I believe there's a great harvest that God wants to, to bring in this community. But that harvest is really just lacking one thing, and that's people who are intentional. People who are willing to not wait for people to come to you that are different from you politically or ethnically or religiously or, or uh, morally or culturally, but we're going to them. Not to judge, but to share water of life so that they can engage with the one who can change their lives. Friends, sometimes we act as if we don't have good news, but we do. You've got the best news this world has ever heard. The kind of news that can change a person's eternal destiny from heaven, from hell to heaven. The kind of news that can change a person's character and relationships. The kind of good news that can actually uh, help a person find forgiveness and cleansing and, and to know what it is to be right with God. The kind of news that shares with people water in a dry and thirsty culture. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus, and that Thank you that he is the water of life, that he is the Messiah, that he is the one greater than Jacob. And thank you for the good news message that Jesus came and became a man as God, lived a sinless life and cared tenderly for people and their needs and their brokenness, like this woman. And he went to the cross, though innocent of any sin, to take upon himself all of our guilt, all of our brokenness, all of our sin. That he has risen from the dead. That when he died on the cross, he said, it is finished. The price has been paid. Father, I pray for any that are hearing this message today that have not yet trusted completely and fully and totally in Jesus as their Savior, as Jesus is the one who can rescue them. Father, may we declare who Jesus is. May we intentionally engage with people that need water of life. May we cross over the barriers rather than waiting for them to. And may we share how you have changed our lives so that they can become curious and thirsty. And when they share their needs with us, maybe, maybe we'll be ready with mercy and grace and love 
to point them to the one in whom they can find forgiveness and reconciliation that their lives can be transformed too. God, may we be people who offer living water and a dry culture. In Jesus' name, amen.